Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Uh, hopefully make it from verses 6 through uh, verse 10. Remember, uh, Peter is writing to churches in Asia area that um, have been under persecution. Pastor Brian is going through the seven churches of Revelation. And it just so happens that the churches that Peter is writing to are in the same exact location as the churches that we see in the, the book of Revelation. And uh, I'm going to try to get the, the picture next week to show uh, the seven churches of Revelation because there's basically a road that links all of them. And there's a, there's a possibility that uh, even the letter of Peter going to the churches might have been on the same road going to a lot of the same churches. We don't know exactly what churches uh, his letter went to, but it is for the churches of that region. Ed, yes. Um, in that area, that's Albania now, and but in that area, uh, those seven churches, um, Jessica Murphy, Scott and Kathy Murphy from Regeneration Reservation, she is working there in a ministry uh, among young people. Hmm. And I get her uh, update every quarter. Great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last week we started on talking about the spiritual privileges of being a believer in Jesus Christ, the privileges of having been chosen. And those privileges are the privilege of the union with Christ privilege of access to God, privilege of security in Christ, privilege of eternal heaven, the privilege of election by Christ, and the privilege of being a royal priesthood. So if you look at verse 6, we'll start there. Let me read through the scriptures. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to his doom, and to this doom, excuse me, they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." All right, uh, talked last week about the initiation into the privileges of being a, a believer in Jesus Christ. As we go through, just a quick review of those and the new ones, um, was into the imagery of a spiritual house once again. And the spiritual house that we're talking about, of course, is the church. So the, the privilege of, of union with Christ, if you remember, we mentioned he says in verse 4 here in First Peter, And coming to him as a living stone, 
our initiation into the privileges is to come to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it's the idea of believing on him, taking his yoke, learning from him. And it's not just for salvation. Uh, the word there to, to come to him is it's an intense verb, if you will. It has the idea of an intimate, abiding, personal fellowship with him. And then we talk about the privilege of union with Christ. Uh, he says in verse 5, you also as living stones. When believers come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's the living stone, we also become living stones. He is the cornerstone living stone. We also become living stones. That means we are like him. That means we share his life. Christ as the living stone is he's called living stone because he died and he rose again, came back to life. He lives again. And as we studied last week, we also have died in Christ, and we are alive in him. So we are like him in that way. He's the cornerstone, and we are the living stones that are connected to him. And uh, that's all built on the foundation of the, the pro apostles and the prophets. And in union with Christ, which is what we are, we not only receive the privileges that come with the union, we are also part of the spiritual building that Jesus Christ uses to build his kingdom. So we are part of the building, but we're also part of that building that, that Jesus has used to continue building that kingdom, that spiritual building. Another privilege is access to God. Went too far there access to God as priest. We have access to God as priest. Uh, Peter says we are building, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And we talked about this last week. As, as spiritual stones, we're members of his house. We're in his presence. We have his presence. And we always have access to him. We always have access to God through Jesus Christ. That access uh, won't go away. And unlike the, the Old Testament priesthood, which we talked about, which for all Israel, there were only certain people who were in the priesthood, all believers are a holy priesthood. You and I are part of a holy priesthood. And then another privilege we have is the privilege of security in Christ. All right, verse 6. Let's look at that again. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Or uh, another version you have may say will not be put to shame. Uh, anybody have anything different? Or not confounded. Not confounded, okay. Any other versions that use a different word there, not be put to shame, not confounded. All right. Um, Peter here is, is reminding us back with Isaiah had to say in chapter 28, verse 16. 
we uh, and uh, Don covered this, I remember, uh, in pretty good detail for us, where Isaiah wrote, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and the one who believes in it will not be disturbed, will not be disturbed. So we have all these different words that describe of what won't happen to us because we believe. Um, it's the idea of we're not going to be deceived. We're not going to be fooled. We're not going to be disappointed. When we come to Jesus Christ, we're not going to be disappointed. And I'm going to tell you something else. Peter talks a lot about our inheritance, us going to heaven. Folks, when you get to heaven, I can guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. You will not be confounded. Amen. You will not be disturbed. I'm going to tell you something. At death, Bill, when he got to heaven, he wasn't disturbed. He wasn't fooled. He wasn't disappointed at all, as neither was Harold. When they got there, there was no disappointment. It was all glory. I can... I. I don't know exactly what it's like, but I can just imagine my first thought probably would be, maybe theirs was, it's more than I imagined. I can't believe it. This is so great. Look at our Lord on his throne. We'll not be disappointed. That's a privilege. And we have that security. We have that security. The security is when we close our eyes in death and we open our spiritual eyes in everlasting life, there will be no disappointment. It will be absolutely wonderful. And we're secure in that. Peter is making sure that, that his readers understand that you can count on that. Reminds me of what Paul had to say in Romans. If you will turn over to Romans chapter 8. Probably one of the most difficult things to do is I is come up with language of what heaven's going to be like. To come up with language, I mean, we use words that we understand, and the only thing we can do is compare to what we know on earth. That's all we can do. But look what Paul has to say. First of all, he talks about election, our choosing to go to heaven. And that begins in verse 28 of Romans 8. Where he says, now we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then following that, there's some rhetorical questions that Paul addresses. Verse 31 what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Those are the rhetorical questions. Now, Paul's going to summarize the answer to all these questions. Look at verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the security that Peter is talking about. So we have the privilege of security in Christ. We also have the privilege of eternal heaven. The privilege of eternal heaven. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 7. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Basically, in this world, there are two groups or two classes of people. You can divide all the world at any time into this two groups or two classes of people. Do you know what they are? Believers and unbelievers. Yeah. Those who are going to heaven and those who are not going to heaven. You're either in one group or the other. And that's the only two groups. There is nothing in between. There is nothing else. And there is no purgatory. There's no purgatory. That's right. <laughs> and Peter shows us our privilege of being heaven-bound by describing those who are not heaven-bound. He's describing where we are by describing this other group, if you will. And the same cornerstone that draws us into the living church and makes us a part of it is the same cornerstone that will cause unbelievers to stumble. Notice the words that, that Peter uses here. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's already described the same stone as being the cornerstone that enables us to be connected to him, that enables us to be living stones as we come to him. Now, he uses a stone of stumbling. Well, that one's actually pretty evident. When you think of stumbling, that's somebody stumbles and falls. You trip over something. Okay, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that unbelievers trip over, if you will. They trip over uh, theologically. They trip over in their belief. They trip over in their sin. Uh, They stumble in it. And why do they stumble? They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. That's something to keep in mind. Those that are not in the group that we are in. On our way to heaven, they stumble. They're not going there. Why? 
because they are disobedient to the word. Well, what word would they be disobedient to? The encyclopedias, dictionaries? What are they what word are they disobedient to? John three sixteen. Okay. All right. The gospel, right? Because if you go back to chapter one, uh, verse twenty three, for you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. We are born again because of the gospel. They stumble. Why? Because they are disobedient to the gospel. The gospel is not just an invitation. The gospel is a command. The command is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So the gospel brings with it a command. People are commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they stumble because they are disobedient to that. They refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So they stumble. And anyone who refuses to obey the gospel, to believe on Jesus Christ, they've been appointed to their doom, Peter is saying him. See, God judges unbelievers as a consequence of their lack of love for him and their rejection of Jesus Christ. So when we think of the doom of unbelievers, think of the doom that they have chosen. They have chosen to disbelieve. Um, let me read to you Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 46. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures a stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what I'm reading to you is not that uh, Peter took something from Paul that we've already will look at, um, but Peter heard from Jesus Christ just like Paul did. A stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. So that's back what Peter was talking about in verse 6. And it is marvelous in our eyes, Jesus said. Verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Who is Jesus talking to at this time? Talking to the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 44. And he said to them, And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And on whomever it falls, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. So they stumble back in First Peter. They stumble. It's a stumbling rock and a rock of offense. And that's what Jesus was talking about. In other words, the, the picture is they stumble and they fall on the rock. You can imagine somebody stumbling and falling on a boulder and hitting their head, if, there, if you will. That's what Peter's talking about, and that's what Jesus was talking about, too. They not only stumble because of him, but they die because of him also. You know, Peter talked about us doing our spiritual duty. He said we need to be holy. He told us to fervently love one another. He said, long for the pure milk of the word. But you know what? We have some wonderful, 
spiritual privileges as we come to Christ and we're born again. Another one is we have the privilege of election by Christ. Election by Christ. Jesus said in verse 9, But you are a chosen people. You are a chosen people. Now he's already addressed believers as being chosen. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. Jesus said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Who are chosen. And here he's reiterating that. We are a chosen people. And again, Peter is going to keep referring back, if you will, to the Old Testament to draw on a lot of the, the truths that he's trying to teach her. Um, God chose Israel to be his people at one time. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. So Israel were chosen people, if you will. They were chosen by God. God had chosen them. Out of all the people from the earth, God chose Israel to be, um, if you will, the heralds of who he is. But now, he has chosen from all the people of the earth, believers in him. The church, if you will, it's the church. And you know what? This is... This is kind of like the spiritual privilege, the general spiritual privilege that all the other privileges come from. God chose Israel to be his chosen people. Now he says, we are the chosen people. That does not mean we've taken Israel's place. That does not mean Israel is the chosen people. Now they're no longer, they've lost that completely. Now the church is the chosen people. Israel was God's chosen people, and they still are the chosen people for the millennium. Uh, when I'm sure when they get into our Sunday evening teachings on the millennium, a lot's going to be have, uh, told us about Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. They sinned. God set them aside for a while. But all he did was set them aside. They still have promises coming from God that we're going to see realized in, in the millennial kingdom. And being God's chosen people, being elected by God, it's all about God. It's not about us. Let me tell you some points that come from being chosen. Being chosen. Being chosen or elected is absolutely the, the solitary decision of God. God's decision. If you want to find the most pride-crushing truth in all scripture, look no further than election. Because none of us can claim anything for being elected. Also, uh, being chosen, elected, is totally by divine grace. It's God's gift. Look no further to find a more God-exalting doctrine than the fact that he chose you and there was nothing worthy of you being chosen. Another one. 
the doctrine of election, being chosen, promotes holiness. You know, when you think about this, we should be totally consumed by gratitude and, and a strong desire to obey him. Why? Because he chose us. He chose us to put his love on us. And he chose us to love him. First thing on our minds when we wake up in the morning ought to be, thank you, God. Thank you for choosing me. Another one, the doctrine of election, it's eternal. It's unchangeable. And if there's anything that should give us strength and should give us peace during difficult times, it's the idea of this is waiting in heaven for me. And it cannot change. And another one. Uh, being chosen by God is the most joy-producing doctrine because it's the surest hope we have in a sin-laden world under control of the prince of the power of the air. Uh, if I, I, I know what you probably feel sometimes when you see what's going on in the news. You see what's going on in the world. You see what's going on in our country. And you see how bad it is. And you see what happens when there's a world that's been influenced by the prince of the power of the air. But it should not stop us from having our joy. Because we have the only hope and the greatest hope throughout all these problems, throughout everything that's going on. We have the hope and the hope of knowing for sure that one day it will come to an end. And Christ will reign. And he will reign in righteousness. And there will be righteousness on this earth. And we won't be dealing with sin anymore. Not our sin and not the sin that's out there in the world. We have another privilege. The privilege of being a royal priesthood. Now, Peter's already referred to the church as a, as a holy priesthood. And that was the idea of being set apart to God. Here he refers to a, a royal priesthood, a priesthood that worships and serves him, but is also royalty. This is kind of interesting. Not only does the priesthood have access to our Lord's presence to offer spiritual sacrifices, but the priest rule and reign with him in his kingdom. The verse 5, the spiritual house that's being talked about, is a dwelling place for a royal family. And that's us. The Old Testament model for a royal priest who's a priest and king was whom? Priest and king. Who? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. That's right. It's Melchizedek. And he's the one that uh, referred to and is compared to in uh, Hebrews and other parts of the Bible that Christ is under the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is a priest, but he's also a king. And since we are joined to Jesus Christ, who is, if you will, the, the royal priest, we are also royal priests. Now, you know what? The Bible doesn't provide a whole lot that I can find on, on our reigning with him 
It, it, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that means we reign with him. What, do, what exactly do we do when we're reigning and, and all of that? But the Bible is clear that we do rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 1 through 4. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Mm. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to form the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Don't ask me what that means, please, because I have no idea. But we're going to be judging in the world. We judge angels. How much more the matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account to the church? Paul's using the idea that the millennial kingdom, somehow we rule and reign and judge with Jesus Christ. Who that is, what it is, where it is. I have a friend of mine that says uh, that when it comes to the millennial kingdom, he wants to be in Switzerland because he thinks that would be a, a, a great place to be. Then I reminded him that there's going to be a lot of changes to the earth during the tribulation, and you better, you better stop and think about where you want to be before you know what it's going to be like. All right, But that's the idea because that's where he hoped he was being ruling and, and reigning from. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, First Peter referring to, and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Folks, that should get you excited. That should, that should say, come, Lord Jesus, let's start it now. Bring in your millennial kingdom now. And you know what? The joy of, of, of reigning with him is not a result of earning that position. It's a result of God choosing you for that before the foundation of the world. Now, Peter continues his descriptions of the living stones, which we could describe as privileges. We could describe as advantages or benefits. I'm just going to call them benefits. We had the benefit of scriptural stones. Look at verse 9. Uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're a holy nation. Now Peter, once again, is drawing upon the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, 6, um, the Lord talking about Israel again. <laughs> And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the, the sons of Israel. A holy nation. Well, Israel lost that status with their disobedience. But it's still going to happen one of these days. When God said to me, you will be my holy nation, it's still going to happen. Now he says the word nation there. Uh, it's just another word for people. Okay, uh, you shall be to me a holy people. But he's focusing on a group here, a group of individual peoples. And they're not identified by race or background 
or lineage or country or gender or education or intelligence or age. What do all these people have in common to be grouped like this? The holy people, holy. They have been set apart. That's what holy means. Set apart, separated unto this. You know, we usually use the word sanctification uh, to refer to our growing in, in Christ's likeness, becoming more like Christ in, the, in its fullest sense, complete sense. The word of uh, sanctification means cleansing from sin. And it has two aspects. One is our position before God. Uh, we call it our uh, justification, if we will. We are, we are declared to be holy and righteous. You are holy. You are righteous. You have been set a, apart. Why? Because you've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not your own righteousness. It's his righteousness. It's his righteousness that's been added to your account and my account. It's how God sees us eternally. God sees us eternally as being righteous, as being holy. Some refer to that as the, the personal sanctification. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter talks about us being holy. Yet when you get to verses 15 and 16, he says, be holy. He says, you are holy, and guess what? You are to, to be holy, and that's the other side of sanctification. Um, we are to be growing in holiness, experientially. So in God's eyes, judicially, we are holy and righteous. But yet, as we walk this earth, we need to be growing in holy and righteousness experientially. Another benefit. Uh, in Exodus 19.5, um, God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Let's talk about Israel. Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now I'll go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. What does it mean that we're God's possession? Now, if you're shopping online, or if you go down to the store and you're doing shopping, and you see something you want to have, what do you do to possess it? What do you do? What? Buy you buy it. You purchase it, don't you? You purchase it. That's exactly what possession means right here. It means to, to purpose. Excuse me, to purchase. It means to acquire for a price. We belong to God who purchased us, who redeemed us, who bought us out of slavery. Slavery to sin, to Satan, to serve the one true God. God purchased us. And we see that in Ephesians 1.14. Who is the first installment of our inheritance, talking about the church, in regard to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of the glory. The first installment, the installment. All right? God purchased us. He bought you and I. What was the price? Yes. 
His son dying on the cross. Was I worth it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9. John wrote, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. Why? For you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We were purchased by the blood of Christ. Those whom God chose, who he separated out from the world, are the ones he redeemed, and they're the ones that Christ died for. These are the people who belong to God, his possession. We are his possession. And when we think possessing, we think of having something in our hands. You really possess it when you got it in your hands. All right? You go through the checkout counter and, and you pay for it, but you, but you don't possess it until it's in your hands. Well, guess what? Our Lord understands that. When he said back in John chapter 10, 27 through 29, he said, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's God possesses. We are in his hand. We are in the hand of Christ. He goes on to say, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Why? Because he possesses us. We are his possession. He's got hold of us. There's another benefit. Look in chapter 9, uh, verse B. Uh, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The unregenerate world is, is shrouded in two kinds of darkness. Two kinds of darkness. The first one's intellectual. It's, it's the inability to see and know the truth. The truth of the word of God, okay? It's ignorance. You know, mankind probably thought he left the ignorance when he left the dark ages and came into the age of enlightenment. But intellectual darkness can only be conquered by the defeat of the second darkness. And the second darkness is moral darkness. It's a state of, of unbelievers trapped in their sin in Satan's world. And everyone is born into darkness. And they remain in that darkness until they're called by God out of that darkness. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light. That's the moral one right there. They would rather have their darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds would be exposed. To be called out of the darkness is to be chosen. It's to be chosen by God. And that's when the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and works the truth in our hearts. And we leave that moral darkness. And then when that happens, we're brought into his, his marvelous light. Where we can understand the truth, not just intellectually, but spiritually. That's when we can turn from <clears throat> sinful ways, like when we were in darkness, to righteousness. 
Paul said in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's another benefit. Let me see if I can get it here. Oh yeah, verse 10. Look at verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've received the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. That's the mercy. You know, Israel was one time a a people of God. And for a period of time, God has taken that away from them. For a period of time. Uh, If you remember back to Hosea, when he had a couple of children and God told them uh, what to name his children. Basically, the names that he gave his children was, all right, God has let us go for now, but he will get us again. We will be his people again. The Gentiles never experienced what Israel experienced, being God's people at one time. Now, he says they have the mercy, the mercy of God. God has two kinds of mercy, kind of the same way he has two kinds of grace. There's general mercy given to mankind as a whole. It's his providence to all creation. God has every right, and he would be justified to do what when a person sins? When a person sins, God would be right and justified to do what? Punish him. That's right, punish him. Punish him. But guess what? He mercifully chooses not to unleash all the disastrous consequences that come with man's sinfulness. What man deserves. We deserve, man deserves to, to, they, right then and then, die because of sin. That's what, that's what's deserved. It's God's mercy that he doesn't do that. He does not do that with mankind. This is one place where we see the, the patience of God. Turn over to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. This is his patience. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why doesn't he just zap everyone the first time they sin? Because he has people he wants to come to repentance. That's his mercy. Can you think of any Genesis accounts where the patience and mercy of God are seen together? Adam and Eve, there's one. I thought you said there are people already judged. Did I miss something there? What, what, what do you mean? I thought you said that he wants people to come. Well, that assumes that they have already not come yet. Okay, he wants them to come right. to obedience. They're already dead in the trespasses and sins. So they, but they, But they can come to life. God can bring breathe life into them as they hear the gospel. And the Holy Spirit uses that to bring them to light, to take them out of darkness and bring them to light. Have I got that right? I'm missing something here because you said that he wants people to come to repentance. That means they weren't 
chosen before. And, and no, no, no. Um, we don't know who's chosen. Okay? Um, when you're chosen, okay, if you're chosen, eventually you will come to the light. You will believe. The Holy Spirit will work the truth in your life. But until then, you're walking in sin. Until then, you are walking in darkness. Until then, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The unbelievers uh, out there may be chosen by God, but they don't know it. That's right. Now, there's a second kind of divine mercy. And it's the divine mercy that you and I received. The mercy given to those who are his possession it's the mercy of not getting what we deserve for our sins. It's the mercy is for everyone, his saving mercy. It's not for everyone, but for those who God has chosen to give his mercy to. Maybe that will help you, Gene. His general mercy is that we are not in hell right now. His elect mercy or chosen mercy is that we never will be. You know, we talk about all these special privileges and benefits that we have. And as I talk about it, you know what? They are not just for our benefit. We are chosen, a royal family, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. We're no longer in darkness, and, and now we're in this light. We're a people of God. Verse 9 says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Don't miss this. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That's a purpose clause. That's called a, a purpose clause. In other words, all these things happen. Well, what's the purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Bring glory to him. That's right. Here we have the overarching purpose, the reason why we do not immediately leave this earth behind and enter the presence of the Lord when we're born again. These benefits that I've talked about, that Peter talks about, prepare and enable us to be preachers of the gospel. To be preachers of the gospel. When God chose us, he used preachers. When God chose us, he used preachers of the gospel to give us his word, which the Holy Spirit used to bring to us these privileges and benefits, so that we also may do the same. Peter is over and over again going to talk about preachers of the gospel. That's why we were saved and are still here, so that we can do the same that was done for us. What are you doing in your lives? What are you working for that has any eternal value? What do you have now that you're going to take with you to heaven? What do you have now that you will have in the millennial kingdom? What do you have now that you will have in the new earth and the new heavens? The only part of creation on this earth, I think, that you will see in glory are souls who have been saved. Souls that have been saved. It is God's plan to use his possession, that's us, the church, 
to bring more souls into Christ's church, more living stones. That's the part I don't understand. Either you are or you aren't. Let, let me go ahead and finish this off because we're running out of time, okay? And then maybe I'll pick that up next week, Gene. All right. Um, you know what? By his providence, God will never be hampered by us not proclaiming the excellencies of him. That's not going to hamper God. There's no one who's not going to get saved because I am disobedient to the gospel. No one's, no, that's not going to happen. You're not doing God a favor, folks. By sharing the gospel. You're doing yourself a favor. Availing yourself to another blessing. Getting more rewards in heaven. But it's more than that. It's more than that. By making yourself ready. And available. And in obedience. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. By proclaiming Christ. To those who need a savior. You are participating in. And being a part of. The greatest spiritual building project. You're participating in and being a part of the most wonderful work in all of creation's history. You're participating in and being a part of the addition of worshipers to our most deserving and glorious God. You're you are participating in and being a part of the one thing that will last for all eternity. Examine your lives and everything you do day to day and what part of it is going to be existing in all eternity. To churches that are being persecuted, Peter says, after giving thought to your spiritual privileges and benefits, direct your thoughts to our world of lost unbelievers. That's what he's saying to people who are persecuted. Get your mind off your persecution and problems and to your privileges that lead you to start thinking about those out there who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that we would do that, that we would be used by you to bring more spiritual stones into your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.